Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Coltside Radio's Late Night Movie. Enjoy as your two glorious hosts, Carl Caper and Stephen M. Ronquillo, bring you the best in cinematic quality and rarity and lost gems that you should see more. So, let's get this show started. And tonight, Feature is... Warner Brothers presents performance with Mick Jagger. And Mick Jagger. James Fox. And James Fox. Madness. No soap on the gentleman's collar. Madness and sanity. And welcome to this special episode. As usual tonight, we have me, which is me, and Carl. Say hello, Carl. Hello, Carl. How are you? <laughs> and to do we have Tony Strauss. Why is it, Tony, do you think that every time there's a movie about duality, the first thing that comes to my head is, i got to get Tony Strauss on this? I don't know. Probably because I'm a weirdo who likes complex things. <laughs> Well, actually, let's talk about schizophrenia. No, let's not. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> right. And before we start the movie, this is a very schizophrenic movie as we really get into it. And this is just getting into the bare bones. It was directed by two directors who we really don't know who directed most of the film. Well, I have an answer for that. Yeah. Um, well, well, let's get into that. We can and go. It was a we movie done into by two composers. Well, three composers, but only one got the credit. Yeah. And Carl's got the answer to that. Excellent. Oh, I also have something else to tell you too. We'll get to that later. Okay. Yeah. And also, this is the film that Warner Brothers was like. Yeah, we're going to be hip and jump on the Easy Rider bandwagon. And then they watched it. And then the words, I think, can I quote, What is this fucking vile, disgusting piece of shit? No one will ever want to see this. That's not far from a direct quote, actually. (laughs) Yeah. And that is... Donald Clamell and Nicholas Rogue's performance. I've always liked this film, ever since I first got to see it back in the 80s. Yeah, stupid me, I was like, Playboy was like, ooh, we're having an X-rated film from the 70s. And I tuned in, I'm like, ooh, my mom and dad are gone. I want to watch dirty <laughs> movies. And what did I get? Performance of yes. Roman Blansky's Macbeth. 
<laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't get to watch a dirty movie, but hey, it turned out better. <laughs> yeah. No they wonder you wore some art. Yeah. How did you first run into this movie, Carl? Well, actually, we talked We talked why I would run into a movie like this, and that would be the movie channel. And and uh, or or HBO, I don't forget which one. But I ran across the movie it there. channel. HBO never showed any X-rated material. It was the movie channel then. It yeah, the it definitely channel. was. Uh, uh, and and uh, yeah, that's where I saw this. And I think I was, I think that was 1973. I saw this. It's like it was late at night. It was like an 11 o'clock showing, uh, and my folks were sleeping. And I watched it. I watched. Whoa! And of course, at that time, I was. I, I'm. I'm not sure. I guess I was. I was working at the uh, drive-in too. So this was right up my alley. This was art house drive-in boobs and 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 strangeness. So there you go. How did you first run into this, Tony? Um. I first ran into it in, uh, I believe it was 1989, on the movie channel. They had a, uh, like a uh, late night Friday uh, weird movie feature, and that's the way a lot of us were introduced to a lot of weird movies. Oh, and you mean I saw late night Friday in 89? Yeah. <laughs> that was the double and, feature that was... Uh, Run by the Dallas Times Herald film critic John Bloom. Really? Okay. The, yeah. the the screening that I uh that I watched or the airing of it that I watched didn't have a host or an intro or anything. Um Oh so, John didn't have a host on his Friday night double features, only the Saturday. Oh, I see. And so, yeah, and that I, would I, be I made it a habit. Bob Briggs himself. Yep. yep. <laughs> so I had made a habit out Friday of, like, night. watching. Yeah. On Friday night, he'd get to show the artier stuff, as long as he played whatever they wanted him to on Saturday night. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, uh... I had gotten in the habit of watching the the arty films and just recording them on VHS. So fortunately for me, the uh, for whatever reason, the version that was aired was at the time the most complete version that existed. They had the British cut, and it was only shy of a few seconds here and there, but. At the time, I found out, much to my dismay, when I went to buy the movie, um, that Warner Brothers had a heavily truncated cutout on home video on their big box green label. I'm sure we all remember those boxes. And uh, it was it was a horrible mishmash, I think, that they had cut for TV or something, released somewhere. I've, I've still got the Laserdisc of it, but it's... Ooh, I think at least five minutes shorter than the British cut. Yeah. It and was the, the least complete version. Cut, which never yeah, got released in theaters. And it had uh, the actors' voices dubbed. Well, three of the actors, uh, you know, 
uh, Harry Flowers and Moody and uh, the little girl Lorraine, all their voices were dubbed by different people. Um, because yeah, Warner the, uh, executives didn't like at Warner. how English it was either. Yeah, and they, they basically thought that nobody would be able to understand their voices, so they had them overdubbed with these kind of cartoony-sounding voices. But fortunately, that was later fixed. Yeah. And for Carl, this is a historic moment for something else which we'll really get into once the movie starts. And we are at zero right when the Warner Brothers uh, logo comes up. Now, are you yep. at the start? Are you at the start of the Warner Brothers uh, intro that shows the studio a lot, or where are yeah. you paused? Yeah, the, the studio, studio lot. lot in. Okay, that's where yep. I'm at. I'm on the first frame of it. Which really kills me, too, because I would love to see them release their 70s stuff again with the freaking shield. Yeah. That would be nice. I remember my VHS cut still has that. That nice, beautiful old Warner Brothers shield. Are you ready, Carl? I am ready. Okay. We're ready. We're showing this in five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Here we go. We're at the fading in. And, Carl. The Rolling Stones did not perform the soundtrack to this because Keith Richards and Mick Jagger had, had a falling out. So, who did they pick to do this? Well, the person that they picked, and, and he was an orchestrator, his name was Jack Nietzsche. But Jack Nietzsche uh, also uh, had certain musicians with him. That he knew. And one of them was Ry Cooter. Another one was Randy Newman. Randy Newman ended up conducting the orchestra. And, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Cooter plays most of, uh, all the way through it. Not only guitar, he plays dolchimer. He plays all sorts of instruments, string instruments. And in many ways, he, there, there's an argument that comes through is who really composed the soundtrack. And what it comes down to is that Jack Nietzsche sort of like oversaw and sort of did the whole uh, um, soundscape. If you see the, what we've got here, we've got wind going on, so on and so forth. This was Nietzsche's idea. But the music... And this was actually... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. And the music was, was much more... Uh, uh, Ry Cooter. Go ahead, uh, uh, Tony. Okay, and uh, something that uh, happened, basically the background be- behind the, uh, the soundtrack was, as you pointed out, supposed to be initially recorded by the Rolling Stones, but interestingly, what, was, what it was that drove the wedge between the Rolling Stones at the time was the involvement of Anita Pallenberg, who in the past she was you know she was an up and coming actress and an it girl model and uh in the past she had had a relationship with uh Donald Camell and later uh met Brian Jones and started dating him um but 
during the shooting, she was dating Keith Richards. And Keith Richards was a very, very jealous man. And so he was really upset about the involvement and then the the uh, hedonistic rumors that surrounded the shooting, uh, which we'll get into later. But um, So Anita Pallenberg had already been Donald Kamel's ex-girlfriend. Now she's dating Keith Richards. And at the time, the Stones were not on great standing to begin with. They were having some interpersonal problems. So even after Warner Brothers shot this special little five-minute promotional video saying, Mick Jagger is composing the soundtrack for performance. It's going to be amazing. That never really came to fruition. But, and and it, it became a more fragmented and, in my opinion, superior uh, combination of, of artists. But Jack Nietzsche had a very special contribution that he brought to the table, which was a prototype Moog synthesizer when only eight of them existed in the world. He had gotten his hands on a, one of the very first Moog synthesizer prototypes and used that for some of these bizarre soundscapes that he contributed to. You notice yeah. that every uh, shot of Chaz that he's looking through these first five minutes, is it mirror involved? Oh, yeah, they're introducing the idea of duality and identity very early on. And they're yeah. also showing... Showing what a dismissive the opening close shot person. is a mirror image of the last shot of the movie. Oh, oh, absolutely, it is. Makes the film almost feel kind of circular in nature. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, now, in the original script, um, there and in the first cut of the film, um, which was delivered by Donald Kamel and Nicholas Rogue before Nicholas Rogue had to detach himself from the project. Um, this whole beginning was much more straightforward and didn't involve any kind of montage editing. Um, It was something after months of working in post-production, Rogue and Kamel had delivered this story that was first half gangster, second half, call it what you want, bohemian. And, uh, And Warner Brothers hated it. And the thing they hated most was the fact that they thought they were going to get basically a hard day's night with the Rolling Stones. And this zany, you know, swinging London 60s film was what they were expecting. And instead they got this meditation on duality, violence, and entertainment. And so what had happened was Nicholas Rogue, after they delivered this, uh, this initial cut in 1968, which was about 15 minutes longer than the film that we're watching now. And it involved a lot more of Chad's data, or Chaz's day-to-day uh, collecting of debts from people. At one point, he goes to a hospital to visit an old friend of his that it was hospitalized and near death because Chad felt the necessity to teach his friend a lesson in respect. And there's moments of him going from business to business and using his different methods of brutality to collect debts from these people who are paying Harry Flowers, his boss, for protection. But all that kind of went out the window because Warner Brothers said, where the fuck is Mick Jagger? He's the star of our movie. He's the one that we want to have front and center. You've got to bring him closer to the beginning of the film. So Donald Kamel was basically left on his own to recut the film while Nicholas Rogue had to go off and start working on Walkabout. 
and came up with this montage uh, that has become so iconic and so famous and so influential over the years. And how much did Clamell take of the craze to put into Chaz's character, which brings into a certain aspect of it? Well, Chaz was actually himself uh, based on a uh, gangster by the name of Eddie... uh, Eddie... I can't remember his name, but anyway, uh, Reggie Cray was the source of inspiration for his boss, Harry Flowers. Yeah, but exactly. The whole the whole world presented by the Crays was part of what inspired uh, Camel to write write the script in the first place. You know, he'd been really disappointed by the way he had had Duffy taken out of his hands, which was about a gangster that encounters the wild world of of rock and rock and roll and drugs and sex and it was much, supposed to be a much more uh serious film than was originally uh released but or that was eventually released but uh you know the studio being the studio took over uh Donald Camell they got tired of of his fits and uh and they threw him off the set so inspired by uh, the idea of duality presented in Vladimir Nabokov's, uh, uh, I think it was his seventh novel. Um, it was called Despair, about a man who encounters his doppelganger. He kind of yeah, came up with the idea. Uh, he he came up with the idea of the coexistence in London, especially, of these two bizarre worlds: the world of the craze and the world that they, through their glamorous popularity and brutality, they hung out with, you know, famous people and rock stars, and they were very much not camera shy. And Donald uh, Camel became fascinated by the way these two worlds overlap, and that was the impetus for the script yeah. that it eventually became performance. It was first called uh, The Liars and then called The Performers, um, as it got more serious, uh, it went from the liars to the performers, and then eventually they settled on the title performance. And don't forget, Cray was also uh, a rarity because he was a brutal thug of a gangster who was also outwardly gay. Yes. But yeah, the film that another film that Kamel's first film he wrote the idea for was the touchables and he basically took ideas that he liked from that wasn't done right in his eyes from the touchables and duffy and he was sick of the studios bossing him around and in his eyes ruining his ideas so that's where right. the stubborn streak that you ended up cutting Kamel's throat came from yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting how serendipitous the whole beginning worked out. Because, I mean, for one thing, performance is a movie you really can't just watch once and understand it. You have to experience it a few times before the whole overview of it kind of sinks in because of the forward and backward narrative and because of all the duality and because of the two strange worlds that don't seem to have anything to do with each other. And... 
in the original script, like what we're seeing right here with him intimidating this guy, in the original script, it was all about this debt that Chaz had bought from uh, a casino that was paying Harry Flowers for protection, and they were paying a little extra to have Chaz borrowed out to beat up people who didn't pay their markers. And this lawyer that he's talking to right now was actually written as one of one of the people that Chaz had bought this debt and was going to collect seven seven thousand five hundred pounds from. And uh, so he uh, he took this montage approach, uh, Camel did, uh, when he was forced by Warner's to recut the film, and he kind of overlapped all these different elements of. Chaz's world, his his brutality in bed with the woman uh, Dana at the beginning, his brutality in his day-to-day work flow where he goes and smashes up offices and threatens people and frightens people into paying Harry, and in this scene when he's threatening the lawyer because his client is going to testify against uh, Harry Flowers. That was all changed after they started shooting. Um, plot-wise, and changed even more dramatically in the editing room later when Warner's said, screw this, you got to recut this and make it a shorter film with more Mick Jagger. Yeah. And this is one of the most bizarre moments of the first half of the movie. With this chauffeur? Yeah. Just what he does to him. It's one of those... You're expecting, oh, he's going to beat him up or beat his chauffeur up, but no. <laughs> yeah, the guy, the guy that played Moody, his his henchman here, uh, was actually not only an actor but a real life gangster that hung out with a lot of the crazed crew. Yeah. And uh, there's a there's a story about him one day showing up on the set with a matchbook or a matchbox that he was shaking in everybody's face laughing because the previous night he had gotten into an altercation with somebody and bitten their finger off, and he brought their finger to the set in a matchbox to tease everyone. But, yeah, this guy was this guy was the real deal. Um, and he introduced yeah. James Fox to a lot of the London underground at the time in order for Fox to, you know, learn how to act this way, because Fox... Okay, I've I got to interrupt here. Sure. Guitar. Rye You're going to hear Rye Cooter all through this soundtrack. And the interesting thing is what they do here to him and then with the music even makes it more strange. Strange how? And I love how business-like they're acting. In most movies you would see the gangsters act like thugs. And then right. they're just acting like him. The guy delivering milk. Well, well, you know, know? this is the thing. You asked me how strange this was. Uh, You know, just a matter that that it's scored to a blues thing and what's happening here and everything, it's very, very disorienting. Oh, okay, yeah, that's I thought you meant the music itself was strange, but no, no, no. The, the whole the whole idea. It's very disorienting and this is what Kamel wants and this is what Nietzsche is working with, too. Right. Uh, previously, we had all that Moog stuff, which we were talking, which you had mentioned, uh, uh, behind it. 
And look, did you hear what they just mentioned on the radio? The Mississippi Delta, 10,000 miles. So the movie is telling you, yeah, we know this is a Mississippi Delta Blues type score. Wink, wink. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, Sandy Lieberson, the guy that uh, produced this film, he he really struck an interesting deal with Warner's making this happen because Sandy Lieberson had never produced a film before, and then he came and got a deal greenlit with two first-time directors, Kamel or Camel. Sorry, it, I, I grew up pronouncing it Kamel, but I've learned that it's actually pronounced Camel. It's just hard to get used to. But anyway, um, so Camel had developed the script, gotten uh, Marlon Brando to agree to co-star in it with Mick Jagger, and Warner Brothers jumped at the chance. They didn't care that Sandy Lieberson had never produced a film, and they didn't care that, you know, Camel and Rogue had never directed. They All they cared was, oh, geez, well, it's, you know, it's the swinging 60s, and we're going to have this big, awesome swinging 60s film with Marlon Brando and Mick Jagger, and we're going to be bigger than A Hard Day's Night, and it's going to be amazing. Well, Marlon Brando pulled out eventually, um, and James Fox was cast, despite the fact that he was a very posh young man, uh, very upper class, and that had been his reputation. But like I was saying earlier, he got introduced to a lot of the Craze crew and hung out on London's East End to learn how to become this other person, started taking boxing lessons, and really got into the role which kind of messed with his head later, but we'll talk about that uh, much, down the yeah. road. Uh, oh, yeah, to say the um, least. Well, but, uh, there's a quote that so, Zappa says that me and Carlson use a lot, and he says, the business was a lot better when it was run by the guys in suits with big cigars who didn't know what the hell they were doing. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is the kind of movie that can only be made by big guys with cigars that don't know what the hell they're doing. Oh, totally. By the way, that little uh, arrangement that Harry just did on his desk with the boxes and the pens is actually a magic symbol that Donald Kamel put into the film. It's part of a magical spell involving the points of the compass. It's in a lot of his movies. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, and, Oh, so anyway, uh, Donald Camel, Donald Camel wrote the script and was going to direct, and he approached Nicholas Rogue to be the cinematographer. And Nicholas Rogue said, "Look, I'm tired of being a cinematographer. I, I want to direct. I've been a cinematographer on tons of movies like Mask of the Red Death and freaking Lawrence of Arabia." And he's like, "But I want to be a director." And Donald Camel, instead of resisting, was like, "Fine, help me direct. That sounds awesome." So the two really formed a very close bond in which it worked out that Camel dealt mainly with the actors and Rogue dealt mainly with the camera and the frame setups. And they had this really, really great workflow that caused a lot of people to think, a lot of people on the set to think the way to go was to have two directors because they were just, they worked so smoothly together. There was no studio interference. It was it was kind of amazing for a film that later became known for having trouble getting released and having such controversy around it. And the biggest question of this movie was just brought up there by Harry Flowers and repeating. 
which is who is me. Mm-hmm. Right. Who am I? What is my identity? Because this is the only thing that really hints that Chaz is a confused gay man who the guys that Flowers won't let him touch hurt the guys that he was involved with. Right. It's 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 a little hard to pick up the first time through, but yeah, Chaz and Joey Maddox right there pointing at the screen had a pass together. They were they were really, really good buddies and uh they had had a brief little fling and according to the original draft of the script, Joey Maddox had initiated the uh intimate relationship with Chad or with Chaz saying, you know, this let's this, let's experiment together. And it, as it turns out, Chad fell in love with Chaz fell in love with Joey, and Joey didn't like it. So Chaz felt rejected, and that, according to the original drafts of the script, is why Chaz is so furiously, violently wanting revenge against Joey Maddox because he feels yeah. rejected. I mean, there's just and so now, much duality in this movie. I mean, I like the fact, don't you guys, that everything is there, but it's not there for you to see in one going. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the pieces are there. There's Joey's new boyfriend. Yeah. Well, the pieces probably. that Tony has is from... The tie-in paperback novel performance, which has the earlier draft of the script, which was what the film was supposed to be before Warner Brothers. But yeah, once yeah, once shooting got underway, uh, Donald Camel just started rewriting and rewriting and shaping things differently. Um, like the, ti- the entire second half of the film. Uh, was originally supposed to be full of interruptions with these weird people coming in and out of Turner's house and having all these strange interactions with all these colorful people from the bohemian side of life. But uh, once they, once he started making changes, Camel realized that he wanted to focus on the four people in the house and the insular world they lived in by allegedly trying to lock out reality. Mm-hmm. kind of interesting also that uh, the film is is radically different the way it ends uh, as opposed to how it was originally written. Um, it was originally written almost to be a, a demonstration of how a, a man with no, no soul found love and found how to be selfless. Um, but it, it became so much more than that. Uh, a lot of it due to uh, you know the influence of of Borges on uh, Borges' writings on Donald Kamel, who was introduced to Borges by Anita Pallenberg, who actually had a very very heavy influence in the writing of the script. Um, Kamel later said basically that the film wouldn't have developed the way it did without her sh- showing him these other writers that really ended up heavily influencing him. And look how much duality is just in the dialogue in this scene. 
so much overlapping and repeating dialogue, and plus uh, Chaz in the question, do you know who you are? Yes, I know who I am. There, there's so, more to it than that. As I'm looking at this. Hold on, Steve. Hold on. Hold on. So I'm looking at this. I'm seeing uh, a lot of influences from uh, from particularly uh, um, uh, what's a uh, blow up. I'm seeing a lot of feeling like that too, where where uh, uh, maybe Kamel was seeing some of the stuff that was coming from Antonioni and. And, and, and things like that as influences and on persona as well and persona but that comes in a little later I'm saying right now with like the the flashes the uh, you know they were doing the flashes of the camera and so on and so forth and of course that's that's the thing particularly in blow up with David Hemmings alright really blow out is the most influential oh. movie of the late 60's that really doesn't get the writ, written about as much as it should have. The, the movies that influenced it, yeah. Right. Yeah, but Blow Up that. is one that you don't hear enough about because it's an amazing yeah. film that really deserves recognition. Yeah. And is it me or just the fact that they use red paint to splatter on the wall makes this seem more violent than it could have been? Oh, absolutely. It feels like the room's just covered in blood while they're fighting. And this this kind of brutality was never de- really depicted on screen before, especially the way it becomes, you know, sexual in nature. Oh, did you and, see that uh, word on the wall? Poof. Yeah, poof. Yep. To all of our Americans who don't know British slang, poof is British for... Homosexual or... Yeah. And there is that picture of Chaz lifting weights, which could be interpreted as the Blue Boy magazine, which was very popular with the gay culture because it's a way for them to say, oh, I'm in the bodybuilding. I'm not gay. Yeah. And in uh, a 1995 interview, uh, Camel... Camel. Um, he he talked about the the in, the heavy influence he wanted to put into the film about the gay community because he was an artist and you know the sexual orientation and race and color things like that meant nothing to him that people were just people and he wanted to put in a message of saying, you know, these are just people and you know what? The, the the gay community is everywhere whether or not you know it and they have influence and power just like everyone else even though they're hiding in the shadows. And that was one of his major motivations for for including the the overt homosexual elements in the film. Can you imagine if someone went up to Reggie Cray and said, You fucking poof, you dirty faggot? Well, those would be their last words. Yeah, that would be the last thing they would say. Yeah. Yeah, it would. 
Now this this scene here where Joey Maddox died is one of the ones that was really cut down in the uh, in that shorter U.S. Warner's release. Right, and, but, and I saw the U.S. Warner's release. I I have uh, I don't think I've seen this particular scene. So I'm looking. Oh, no wonder you were confused about when we were discussing this, Tony. Uh, Carl was like, performance isn't that gay. What are you talking about? Now I understand why Carl is saying that. He's seen the sanitized version. Where they tried to de-emphasize a lot of it. I am a bullet. Another sense of duality. Great shot. Yeah. And I can and I can tell Jack Nietzsche because I'm a big fan of Vanishing Point. I hear Vanishing Point's score all in this. Oh, by the way, I have to tell you, uh, Tony. You know we're going to do a movie on on Sunday, and we're doing Greaser's Palace. Guess who wrote oh. the score, Stephen? Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah. yesterday yeah like this whole part after the first shot was cut completely out of that shortened Warner's cut like it it goes from him being shot in the bed to the guy running outside and being caught by the cops which really takes away this guy Steve in the tub right here him kind of having this vision of Chaz becoming Turner you know there's that flash of, of Mick Jagger's naked back while Steve is watching and that's the first Real hey. hint at at the merger that's going to happen. Yeah. So you're at, so sadly, Carl. This is the first time this movie's probably making sense to you. <laughs> well, of course, we're doing commentary, so I'm, I'm not really, you know, I I'm not really focusing on it as as a viewer, right? Yeah. So I have to I'll have to watch it again. Which is fine well, because, as Tony said, you, have you know, but but as Tony said, this is a film you need to watch two or three times anyway. It's yeah. just necessary. Yeah. So now Chaz has realized that he's got to get the hell out because, well, he's gunshots aren't man. common in London. <laughs> and he just realized that somebody got away. He's going to dye his hair. Oh, with a bucket of paint? Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now this is where you get, like, kind of a real uh, pastiche of what uh, the inspiration of the craze in their life was because they still lived at home with their mom. They had people come and visit them for tea. Yeah. They would later go out and kill for them. And they hung out with pretty boys in sexy towels and cute little shorts. And we can go back to call. Who was one of your favorite directors that directed that amazing freaking movie about the craze of the 80s, Carl? Uh, it was actually early 90s, I think. And that would be, of course, uh, um, uh, Peter uh, Medak. Yeah. And, and I love that film. 
go yeah. with a great movie. If you like performance, you want to see some of the proliferary details, watch that. Well, the proliferary films that you need to see are The Touchables, The Craze, and Duffy. Another film I would mention uh, is 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 one uh, the guy that did um, uh, um, come on the Michael Caine film from seventy one Dick Carter who was the director yeah. of that he did a film called uh, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead should we tell him uh, uh, Tony yeah what the hell. In the first of the Touchables, which we talked about earlier, Carl. Right. The two girls steal a statue of Michael Caine dressed in the costume from Get Carter. Oh, cool. But but the guy that did that, that's cool. But the guy that did that also did a film, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, with Malcolm McDowell as sort of like an older version of the craze. And he ends up... Sodomizing uh, 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 the brother of the main character, and, and the main character goes after him. Yeah, wasn't that uh, so Mike Hodges that directed that? Yeah, Mike Hodges. That's it. thank you for reminding me. But the thing yeah. about why I mention that is because it's not uncommon in British gangster films to have to equate the gay character as, or you know, or gay sex as as power over. You know your your subservient males, and unfortunately, if you're you're really trying to do a, a, a positive message for the LGBTQ community, I don't think that's exactly positive. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying. And there became it, it became almost fashionable to have homosexuals depicted as cruel, aberrant people, um, which, you know, that's no good either. Um, so, the, but the, the matter-of-fact nature with which homosexuality and bisexuality are presented in this film, it really casts no judgment, like some of those later films would. And it becomes just a part of this world that or these worlds that Chad inhibits, because there's bisexuality in Turner's world as well. Yeah. It's the difference between being closed-minded and truly in denial in who you are, which is Chaz is, and just accepting who you are, like Flowers and Turner are. Mm-hmm. Right. More great right cooter here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I'm going to go into Ry Cooter a little bit, if you guys don't mind. Um, oh, please do. Cooter has he been uh, a studio musician. He had yet to put out his first album. first album came out in 70. When this was filmed, it was 68. Um, yeah. He, as a session musician, uh, uh, he was extremely well-known. And uh, because of that, he got involved with the Stones because the Stones, I forget the album, it was after Between the Buttons when they did Honky Tonk Woman. And and he provided the slide guitar on all that. And in fact, in many ways, he uh, he believed, you know, he says that he basically uh, uh, composed Honky Tonk Woman. Um, 
And so anyway, so there was this real break between the Stones and Cooter over this film to a certain degree because Cooter felt that he deserved a composing credit for, for this. Also involved in the and mix. rightly so. Is it, yeah, and, and, and uh, of course, also in the mix was, was um, um, uh, Newman, Randy Newman, who uh, right. uh, was a songwriter and so on and so forth. Uh, and he ended up doing the uh, um, conducting of, of the live orchestra when they're used. Uh, and so you have this amazing people in this, you know, doing the soundtrack. But when the soundtrack was finally released, very little of Cooter's material or that was on it, which was another story. Yeah, I think there's only two Cooter tracks on the final score. Or right. On the final soundtrack so, release. Exactly. So, that being said, there's actually, did you know there's actually another soundtrack album? Really? Yes. Yeah. And you know what it is? It's called Jammin' with Edward. It was an album that Cooter uh, did surreptitiously while he was was uh, doing this. Ron Wood's on it. Uh, the Stones are not. Okay? Uh, but Ron Wood is. But uh, uh, all these studio musicians that Nietzsche came in are the ones that are playing on Jammin' with Edward. And it's actually a very, very rare album to find. And I have it in my wow. collection. Uh, nice. I'm going to have to and, look for that. I did not know that, Carl. Yeah. Okay. And now that Turner's getting up there, you might know it, Tony. Uh, there's a short story out there that someone wrote that said during who was the member of the Rolling Stones that OD'd and died, that drowned? That was Jones. Brian Jones. Yeah, yeah Brian Jones. it was set. The short story is set during the Brian Jones concert at the park, and Turner is a guest of the Rolling Stones, and it's about the short story is about how Turner's demon dies, as he says in the movie. Dang it! You know I've read about that. I I, I heard about that a long time ago, and I. Now I'm going to have to hunt it down because that's right. Turner did show up in a short story as a character. Now, was that in, because uh, I know in volume three of Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's graphic novel, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I think um, that, okay, then Turner, that Turner does show up as a character. Okay, so maybe, so maybe that's the, uh, that's the one. Yeah. Okay, cool. And anytime we hear, anytime watching this and not listening to our commentary, please listen to Cooter's work here. It is yes, extraordinary. And uh, that guitarist, that had to be based on Jimi Hendrix. It looked just like Oh, him. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he totally had that Hendrix look. Oh, there's Malcolm, something in I believe the crowd the next button that really goes into the rip right before this, and that. The cops are watching them, and there on the ground that he notices is Mars bars. Okay, who wants to tell this story? I do. <laughs> okay. When it was uh, a couple of years before this, uh, 
that's in the BFI book, and you can't really see much many documentaries about performance about it. And the myth is yeah. that none of the sex scenes in this movie were staged. Yep, that is the myth. And Kamel and Rogue and the rest of the cast took the Frank Zappa advice, which is the famous story about Alice Cooper and the chicken where Frank Zappa called up and said, Is it true? And... Alice was like, no, well, don't tell anybody that. It makes good press. Yeah, <laughs> like the old man who shot Liberty Valance saying, yeah. when the yeah. when the legend becomes more interesting than the, or, yeah, when the legend sure. becomes more interesting, print the legend. Yeah. <laughs> and again, Once duality. Again, mirrors, mirrors, mirrors. cameras. Yeah. Eyes and eyes. did you see where she was holding the camera? There's another example of liquid sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, this scene we're about to see here was beautifully shot. And this is one of those scenes where the uh, legend is that they were really having sex during this scene. Well, what people don't know is this scene under the bed sheets took seven freaking days to shoot because Nicholas Rogue was so meticulous about how he wanted the lighting and what kind of film stock he wanted to use for which shots. And it was exhausting to the point where um, Michelle Breton, she, did, she didn't want to shoot the film anymore. This was her first and I think only film. She kind of disappeared after this. Yeah. Um, she plays Lucy. But... They got so exhausted shooting all this, but it's actually such a beautiful little scene, and it's very erotic and very loving and touching at the same time. But, you know, if if you want to say, oh, yeah, they were really having sex in that shot, well, you're talking about seven days of meticulous shooting with a little little Englishman waving lights in your face and screaming exactly how he, you have to position your body so his lighting works good. So it's kind of unlikely. This isn't the only film where Rogue let the myth, had a myth going about did they or, did they or didn't they? Oh, no. He he seems no. really relish no. in, those, in those urban legends. Uh, yeah, don't look now. But what the funny thing is in that it's never really said much is that if, uh, it, uh, to save money on the set, uh, uh, Jagger... Got the bed. <laughs> he loved this bed so much that he said, "Okay, you can cut thirty percent of my salary if you'll just give me this bed once we're done." <laughs> nice. And I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, you know, maybe hey, that's why the movie came the in memory. under budget. Yeah. Thanks for the memories. You know, you have the bed, you'll you remember this scene for the rest of your fucking life. And look at the lighting in this scene. It's just so beautiful and so tender. It's really a gorgeous, gorgeous scene. And it's a way to introduce this world that Chaz has just unwillingly weaseled his way into while hiding out from his gangster boss. These these three people hiding away from the world totally in love with one another. 
Now, Carl, is this Nietzsche right here we're hearing? Yes. And okay. and that is the dulcimer. Right. Here's the dulcimer. That's Oh, cooter. absolutely. Oh, the dulcimer okay. is cooter. Okay. Mm-hmm. The other instrument is... is um, oh. oh, what the hell is that? And uh, um, let's be honest. How many times have you heard... Oh, Nicholas Rogue and Donald Kamel went over budget. <laughs> it's actually not true. They came in under budget. They were over scheduled by four days, but they came in under budget. Yeah, I mean, really, it's hilarious because that's really why Warner Bros. excited. They came in under budget. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting when they introduced this this little girl Lorraine, another element of duality is her wearing that fake mustache and she's completely unfazed by this weird world around her she's the housekeeper's daughter and to her everything here is just normal and full of love whereas chad sees this world as degenerate free love drug users bohemians you know oh, it just disgusts him it's everything oh you know what's funny they asked the camel rogue afterwards how did you get the money to spend on that wonderful bathroom? We didn't. It was uh, already there. It came <laughs> with the house. <laughs> now, whose house there was, was this? There was a Rolling Stones actually... show there, if you called it. Uh, this was actually a vacant house in uh, Loud Square in London. Not, it's actually not in Powys Square. A lot of people to this day, a lot of fans of the movie drive around Powys Square to uh, try and find this house. But it was actually in Loud Square, uh, and it was a mansion that Sandy uh, Lieberman, the producer, had gotten word of. And it just worked because it kind of stuck out from the neighborhood, um, but at the same time was hidden among it. So it worked out as a perfect location, and they were able to basically just move in. They built sets in the basement. They built... uh, they built everything they needed in here and kind of lived on the set while they filmed all this, which made yeah, it the all the more was intimate. There. And what I was talking about, the Rolling Stones joke, is there was a box of brown sugar on the table. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. You know, do you guys mind if I read uh, this letter that Camel uh, and Jagger, or Camel and Jagger wrote together to... Uh, Warner Brothers basically telling him to shit or get off the pot. Yeah, go for um, it. Go for okay, it. This, is, this is a quote. This film is about the perverted love affair between homo sapiens and lady violence. In common with the subject, it's necessarily horrifying, paradoxical, and absurd. To make such a film means accepting the subject is loaded with every taboo in the book. If you want to emasculate the most savage and Two, the most affectionate scenes in our movie, uh, or you seem to want to emasculate them. If performance does not upset audiences, then it's nothing. If this fact upsets you, the alternative is to sell it fast and no more bullshit. Signed, Donald Camel and Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Nice. And the, the only way that this movie even ended up getting released because as we pointed out earlier it was made in 68 it was supposed to be released in 68 and warner brothers hated it so much they shelved it even after all the post-production work and everything had been done to it and uh 
1970, you know, um, Altamont, the Altamont tragedy had happened, the Manson murders had happened, and they decided it might be sellable to kind of cash in on Mick Jagger's evil bad boy of rock and roll image. And that's what eventually allowed them to reluctantly get this film released. Right. Yeah, this is one of what they what's been called the uh, Warner Brothers Forbidden Three. Mm-hmm. Yep. And two of them have been released, and that is performance. There's a good Blu-ray, but get the BFI if they're all region, right, Tony? Yeah, if you if you can get the UK Blu-ray. That's the most complete cut of the film, because even the one on the Criterion and Channel is missing some audio. Yeah, and uh, the second is Friedkin's Cruising, which Arrow put out a good edition. Mm-hmm. But the third is really of the '70s movie fans. It's the really only Holy Grail left, right, Carl? Yeah, and of course that would be The Devils, of course. Uh... Yep, Ken Russell's film. Ken Russell. And I've got a great bootleg Blu-ray of it. It's a gorgeous freaking print. But oh, very it's rubbed nice. of any mention, even in the documentary Hell on Earth, of the Rape of Christ scene. The Warners right. still lined up on this, but not the devil. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the, uh, the in the devils that the... Masturbation with the finger bone footage has ever surfaced, has it? No, there's even there's really no evidence that it exists, except for the word of Ken Russell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and his cinematographer and his editor, they you know they all said it was there when they turned in the film. Right. Well, yeah, this. If it wa- it's because of how uptight Warner's was that this was never a big film on the midnight movie circuit. Because I'm sure you guys back then, Carl, when you were performing at the college, would have just jumped on something like this to show. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? I tried to get this film for uh, when I was in college from 75 to 79. I ran, uh, or was was the main student on on getting the films for the students uh, particularly the midnight films and I tried to get this and I had somebody who could get almost anything Howard and Howard could not get this movie we couldn't we couldn't, couldn't get a, couldn't get a print to rent for the college screening nope oh nope. man he said he said it was impossible and he yeah. could get stuff from anywhere This is a Gil Scott Heron love note. This song is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it was performed by the Last Poets. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one and thing I, about I don't... this. The Criterion, I have the subtitles in. Don't have to sound that much. They actually include song credits on this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, which is nice. I love it when subtitles actually do that. So now Oh man, look at those little Hammond B twos. 
God damn. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> Fucking A. Yeah. <laughs> Gorgeous equipment. Oh, yeah. And you know that Richard O'Brien had to have seen this movie before he wrote Rocky Horror Picture Show because Turner's look and Frankenfurter's look. All right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, this, oh, without this movie a influenced a, a lot of people, from Tarantino to Guy Ritchie to Martin Scorsese, has claimed that it's one of his all-time favorite pieces of cinema. And he even used a little bit of memo from Turner in Goodfellas during the uh, during the scene toward the end when Ray Liotta's running around trying to do a bunch of stuff while he's high as fuck on cocaine. Yeah. Right. And the scene with Tarantino's in True Romance where Gary Oldman's uh, talking shit to Christian Slater. We'll point out yeah. the exact scene later. And isn't it funny, instead of instead of Turner trying to find his muse, he's trying to find his demon? Yep. Yeah. Yep. He's lost his demon. Oh, for, That's a very oh, rock and roll perspective. What was the name of the album that came out in 1970, right before this was finally released? On the, the oh, Stones uh, album? Honor Satanic Majesty's ser- Service? Yep, you got it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, wasn't this album, or wasn't Memo from Turner supposed to be on that album, but never ended up being on it? Yeah. Um, well... Yeah. Okay, so the, let's talk about, you know, I was talking about Cooter and the work. The uh, Honky Tonk Women came out on the album Let It Sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay, 69. Um, and then and then right after that, there was one in 72. I'm looking for it in here. It's not Goatheads. It's, um, oh, Get Your Yaya's Out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, Okay. But it's that that era, uh, which is which is before you know their their real seventies era, um, and this was probably their most experimental era. One of my favorite albums of theirs, in fact, my favorite album albums of theirs, is um, um, the one in '66, uh, "Between the Buttons." That's my favorite song of theirs all time, which is uh, "Cool, Calm, and Collected." Great piano. And, uh, Carl, that line is used in Memo from Turner. Yeah. Your daughter's yes. licking the policeman's uniform clean between the buttons. Yep. Um. Yeah, and it's interesting because now nowadays, Memo from Turner is always credited as a Rolling Stones song, but. Back at this time, it was credited as a Mick, Mick Jagger solo composition. Um, right. But I believe that all the Stones performed on the recording, didn't they, Carl? No. On the recording of Memo from Turner that they released on the album, you know, on the Stones album. On Remember I was call, talking about jamming with Edward? Yeah. The, the the version that's on there is the one you hear here oh. with the studio musicians. Okay, okay. I had it backwards then. Okay. 
And it's called Memo with Turner Take One on 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 the Jamming with Edward. And that and Jamming with Edward is the one that has the movie version. Yeah, that has the movie version. And and on that album, it's credited as Memo from Turner uh, Take One. Nice. I am gonna have to hunt this down. I just wanted to point out as she walked in the door that painting with the green background has an interesting. uh, Reference to the Garden of Delights by uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a like lot of illusions in this film. Oh yeah. That's the thing, you know. One commentary can't cover all the rich imagery and oh, symbolism and references that are presented in this movie. You'd have to do five commentaries and overlap them with each other to cover all the influences and illusions and symbols yeah. that uh, the Camel and Rogue were making. And then that have one specifically just on the soundtrack. Seriously. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? uh, we're trying to find all three. We all have our our different things that we're trying to add to this movie. And with me, it's particularly the music. Nice. Well, music, I, I love that you're bringing that element scary. to it. Oh, absolutely. And you, you know, know as much as I love the song and stuff, and it's like I say in the car, it's funny. At the point in the seventies when this movie came out, Jack Nietzsche was the rock star. Yeah. But then ten years later, you go on down the road. Uh, Ry Cooter and Randy Newman Randy. were. Yeah. And look there, right there. In there, yeah. and it says it's over. Yep. And the commentary that they make here about, you know, this reclusive rock star who's become fed up and basically created his own reality, a lot of people assumed that this was Mick Jagger playing himself and that really upset Mick Jagger because he he really did a lot of preparation for this role and took it very seriously it was his first big acting role he had wanted to act for a really long time and it actually kind of hurt his feelings that everyone thought well it's just Mick Jagger playing himself no fucking way uh, (laughs) plus Mick Jagger and the Stones, they were able to mutate and continue to the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean really, that, could, that to me is why they have uh, Jimi Hendrix, because really he was a guy from the late 60s that was crushed by his image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the other thing, too, is is that you take a look at, at um, Jagger. Do you realize he's got a new movie out where he's actually, I forget the film, but it's an art about uh, the uh, art dealers and things like that, and he plays a reclusive art dealer. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Isn't, and isn't he's getting raids. Well, uh, say that again, Tony? It, isn't Don Sutherland in that, too? Yes, Donald Sutherland is in that too. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. I can't remember what it's called right now. 
But yeah, no, supposedly Mick Jagger is is doing like an amazing performance in that film. Uh, performance. Well, I've not seen yeah, any bad Jagger performances. Even in Free Jack, Mick Jagger is the best thing about that movie. Yeah, I agree. He's just got that charisma. Plus, now, I right here, Turner is reading that their family unit has been busted up by Chaz's introduction into the mix. Right. Yeah. Now, right there, uh, Turner was reading from the short story The South by Borges, which is about a guy who gets a head injury, and uh, the narrative is unclear about whether from the head injury on, the man is imagining a stylized version of his own death, or the knife fight at the end of the story is actually what kills him. It's another one of those duality stories about identity and memory. And there's another duality we've missed is that whole thing, like he calls his friend Uncle. Right. Yeah, yeah Tony, he te- he tells Tony to call him Uncle as, I don't know, like a code, I guess. Unlike, uh, when, we ed- unlike when he edits the magazine, if we don't turn in articles on time, he bends us over and beats us with a whip and say, Call me Daddy! That's actually true. I do that to every one of the writers of Wings Chop. You know, I should start writing for you again. <laughs> What's scary, Carl, is some of them like it more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's, it's kind of interesting with this, with this escape plan that Chaz has. You know, he's he's arranging with his friend Tony to have, you know, a passport made up and to get out of this world while at the same time he is seeing another side of existence and that abyss, if you will, is gazing back into him and developing its own machinations about getting into his head. Yeah, that's the whole thing with the door and him seeing the frames, right? Right. Right. There's Carl's in the 70s, he had that look. And the mustache. <laughs> hey, listen. I did have a porn mustache at one point. I did. It's a scary thing. <laughs> I think these guys are actually from the holy Most mountain. Of the painters look the same. Yeah. They look like extras from the holy mountain, don't they? Yes, they yeah. do. <laughs> I was just about to say that, actually. <laughs> this would make a decent double feature with El Topo. Oh, it certainly would. Or the Holy Mountain. Either one. Yeah. I I always kind of liked that. Ever since I was young and I first saw this movie, I always really liked that element about he brings all these painters. Turner brings all these painters to show their art to him. But he's he's broke. So he can't afford to buy the paintings, so he just buys the frames that the paintings were presented to him in, almost like a way of capturing the memory of these beautiful pieces of art, even though he can't own them. Yeah, and another way to look at it is that he can't appreciate <clears throat> their art, so he has to have that empty void there. And the only art he began, learns to love in this film is Chaz's art of killing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Heel escape. <laughs> There's yep. more of the weird duality. Red, dead. Red, red. Yeah. The normal? The, the word play. The word play in this movie is fun. The way that these druggies are having having all these pun conversations around Chad that are kind of going too. right Another over his head. One the second back of the head shot. Yep. And now we got a facial overlap. Right here. Yeah. And did you notice in Which Mandy first that Cosmatos uh, has that exact same shot right there? What does? Uh, Mandy, the one with Nicolas Cage, he has the same exact oh, yeah. shot right there of Mandy's yeah. face and the cult leader's face merging into one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's earlier in the film when uh, Harry Flowers is talking to Joey Maddox about forcibly taking over Joey Maddox's business. You know, he makes a very interesting distinction about, no, I'm not taking over. The word is merged. And that is kind of a little tip of the hat to what eventually happens with Chaz and Turner is... Mm -hmm. One doesn't take the over, one doesn't take over the other. They merge and become a well, third thing. Well, you know thing. that they don't use the word fair in Harry Flower's world either. Right. They use the word equitable. Yep. Do you call that equitable? <laughs> yeah. We've been courteous. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it's interesting in the. Uh, it it didn't the the whole psychedelic mushroom aspect of this didn't really come about until Camel started rewriting the script after shooting had begun. Originally, it was just these people these these trio of lovers realized that their new tenant was a gangster, and they wanted to see what he was like as a real person without his barriers down. So they just get him high on weed and hash, and each of the girls has sex with him and basically strips away his barriers to the drugs and then using their bodies strip away his physical defenses, allowing him for the first time to care about the passion of others. Because as you see in the beginning of the film, his sex is very violent and selfish and cruel. And in the original script, a lot of the intent was to show that Love making is giving, not taking. But yeah. well, there's there's only a little bit left of that here in this film. With the guy beat up, that would have probably been the loving part. Right. But I think it's interesting. Like if you can look at this era, every time they did one of these, you need to free your mind. They would use LSD, but not in this one. They used mushrooms right okay so so i need to say something here okay so okay. i i will absolutely swear to the world that if you do mushrooms correctly it is a really good thing and it is better than lsd and it's safer i i would agree with that and i say that uh from experience yeah, based on personal experience, I would agree with that 
So mushrooms will make me turn out like you, Carl? Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what, at least you'll be a little more, uh, relaxed and, and, and less maybe confrontational, perhaps. But, you know, it could be a bad thing for you because, you know, I don't know what you do with the goats then in that case. Nobody knows what Stephen does with the goats and nobody wants to ask. <laughs> But for twenty, but for five ninety nine a minute, if you call this number now, bad. <laughs> but here is like where how- they uh, strip away his masculinity. Right, as he's trying to come up with a disguise for his fake passport, they are attempting to strip away all of his defenses. So in the under the guise of helping him disguise himself, they're very cleverly removing his disguise from them. Cuz by this point Turner's on to him. As is demonstrated by him saying, "So you wanted this uh photo to be uh passport size, did you?" Yeah, but even though they know he's a gangster and that he's a dangerous man, here they are showing him compassion. Oh, did you see what the doctor? Did you hear what the doctor's name was, Carl? The no, I didn't. The doctor's name is Doctor Burrow. No, Burrow. <laughs> Burrow. Oh, okay. Not to be yeah. confused with Doctor Benway. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Robert Johnson's come on in my kitchen. Yep. And, of course, Robert Johnson is the uh, old blues guitarist who, legend has it, sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads for for the yep. talent that he had on the guitar. And since we and mentioned... This oh, yeah. Okay, thing we, where he put it on there to really play with the fact that Keith Richards was jealous at this time. Okay, I am turning up my volume for this. Sorry, guys. Okay. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, that's another thing no. with us babbling over, over the top of this, you know. Yeah, We're you really not. Oh, here yeah. we go. Robert Johnson, me and the Devil Blues. Yeah. And, you know, that whole you push the button thing is is an interesting motif that happens throughout the film where, the where you know, at one point Chaz says, you push the buttons. And then another point, uh, Ferber said, I just let things happen. And then later on, when Mick Jagger quotes the old man in the mountains, he said, nothing is true. Everything is permitted. There's this level of abandonment and freedom that comes with that motif and that kind of repeating phrase and idea of someone else being in control. Okay, so I need to jump in here. So you see this, what he's doing. And that's Mick Jagger performing. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Cooter basically said to him, "If you're going to do this, strip it down to nothing." And so all right. it is is the, is the beat and just a little little bit of uh, uh, bass that he does on this. Yeah, okay, which is complimentary twang. That's it. And this song he's playing now is me and Jesse James. But with this song, he's telling Chaz he knows he's a gangster. Yep. And they are going to go on a journey together. Yeah, he's, he's not only, he's like simultaneously mocking Chaz's real persona, but also at the same time acknowledging it and respecting it. It's kind of a fun little play with ideas and psychology there. Oh, absolutely. And now the drugs are starting to kick in. <laughs> absolutely. As well they should. <laughs> I, I I can understand that completely. This movie really was the last gasp of Canterbury Street as most popularly known in pop culture. Right, Tony? The last gasp of what? Carnaby Street. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, a lot of people... uh, Jeff to Carter. Mm Mm-hmm. And now, the mirror... Mm-hmm. Once again, turning the mirror, rotating it on the different identities that are at at play here, or maybe even in a power struggle, because Chaz is trying very hard to hold on to his sobriety and identity, but at the same time, this this fastidious, brutal person you you meet at the beginning of the film is also a character that he has developed. It's also a performer. He's he's yeah. been performing well, his whole life, Flowers and his his right, and his his real identity has never been stripped away out into the open before. Even who he thought he was doesn't actually exist. And and Ferber and Turner and to a lesser degree Lucy are here to show that to him. Oh. <laughs> I love that beautiful three-part shot. It's like a trip oh, yeah. Yeah, from the over, from the mirror overhead. So that that's one thing we need to re, reinstate for our, our um, listeners. That when you're talking about the shots and like this particular one, which I think is absolutely brilliant, that's rogue. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And then, and then the work that we've seen with the actors. Okay. That's Hamill. I just want to make right. sure that, that everybody understands that. And, and every night... Did you notice that in the color out of space, the, the Stanley film when Tommy Chong dies? Yep. He also has the metaphorical hole in his head that they discuss here. Yep. Right. 
And if if you want to really look at visual motifs, where Turner gets shot, the hole in the head that they're discussing, um, if if you look back at the scene with the chauffeur, they shave everywhere on the chauffeur's head except for where Chaz shoots Turner later on. There's that one patch of hair left on him, and that's the same spot yeah. where the hole gets bored at the end of the film. And right. now... Jagger's back in the 50s, the bad boy, the J.D., how uh, the stone started out. <laughs> is the one that achieves madness. Yeah. Well, and there's another way you could look at that uniform, too, and that would be a, an affectionate term that's used in there called... Leather boy. <laughs> yeah. That, that, did you hear what he just said? Give him a bit of stick. Yep. Put the frighteners on him. Bunch of liars and wrigglers. This is where, for the first time, Chaz is so out of it that he's talking about his other life in front of these people he's trying to hide from. And there we go. Back into the head and back out of the head as they put another persona on him. Well, this is the first time he really starts to look like Chaz. Oh, there right. it is, the last words of the old man in the mountain. Mm-hmm. If nothing is true. Everything is permitted. <laughs> and now... It's it's interesting because it was it was by Donald Camel's design that Lucy and Turner look alike. Uh, she's very androgynous and she, they've they've got similar hair, uh, similar skinny features. And now, like Steve just pointed out, Chaz is being made from a gangster into a less masculine, more flamboyant version of Turner. Like yeah, they're, like and, uh, they're all the they're all different aspects of the same person. And the poem is two things that they freed themselves through drugs, but Hashassines is where we get the word assassin from. Killer, which is yep. what Cass is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the first assassin yeah. they would get him stoned on hash. And tell them that you shall see par- you seeing paradise. If you want to go in there, go out and kill a whole lot of mother fathers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this is from Marco Polo, right, guys? Right, I think so. Yeah, yeah or Arabian Nights, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great story about the Hashishin, the assassins, and the... Uh, and the bait and we switch can't for paradise. You're one of the three. Well, you're... Damn, you're all three. <laughs> men, old showmen, or wankers? Man, you're an old showman? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I know, I'm, I'm the old guy of the group. Now, can you imagine the Chaz from the opening scene with Dana now being this person who's laying in the bed with baby powder and a wig? It's He's he's 
completely lost track of who he started this journey as. Okay, I just want to point something out. There, there was. I just figured out there was a reason that I got into armpits for a while. Okay, I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> Look, there's the mirror scene. I love that. Yeah, that's a very famous image from the film. Is the the Berber and Chaz with the mirrors. I love that. There's nothing wrong with me. The I'm normal. That, that always uh, reminded me his his desperate claim when he's basically losing touch with who he is. Him saying, "I'm normal," like like almost begging someone to believe him. And it kind of reminds me of Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver later on, where he writes in his diary how desperate he is to become normal. And. There's, I don't know. I always thought that was kind of an interesting echo, especially after I knew that Scorsese was such a big fan of performance. Right. I wonder if him and Paul Schrader so like came up with that scene. as part of it. Yeah. <laughs> now it's interesting in the in that now, earlier scene. This is the first scene, time that she's calling him out for his gay tendencies, and he's like, no, you're perverted, I'm normal. Mm-hmm. He's desperately ashamed to reveal who he truly is, and the fact that he very probably is bisexual, but won't let himself be who he really needs to be. And Ferber is making a really interesting argument about you know, try and try and view it as a mirror. Try don't see it as someone else or a perversion. See it as a different aspect of yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's Turner while this whole thing's going on, just waiting, waiting to see if he is going to be granted permission to this. Stranger. You know, as I watch this, the images are just astounding. Yeah. They they really, really... And there's the hole again, the hole in the head. You know, when I was... When I was young, when I first saw this, I must have been, what, 15 or 16. And, of course, the sexuality, all that hit me. And I saw the truncated version. But now right. what I see now, it, it, it's more, I've seen the, the whole gorgeous setups and, 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 and all of this that Rogue worked on. And, and the, plus also, of course, uh, the acting, which I have a much more uh, appreciation of. Mm-hmm. But again, what you said, Tony... In that you have to watch this movie more than once. You Three, really do. Times. You have to have a very good friend. Yeah. When I seen it the first time, it was grainy as crap, and you can't appreciate this movie in a grainy print. No, and of course, no, you there really you're can't. listening to, 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 to Cooter again. I just I have mm-hmm. to keep pointing these things out. 
Poor White Hound Dog is the name of this composition. Yeah. Um, and it mu- merges beautifully with Memo from Turner. Um, I, I, I mentioned it earlier when we were at the beginning of the film, but James Fox was so powerfully affected, both in positive and negative ways, uh, by his performance in this film, because it was so unlike anything he'd ever done, and the experience of filming it was so immersive, where he was basically living in this house with these crazy beatniks, (laughs) or crazy bohemians. He, uh, after being around all the sex and drugs and rock and roll, he kind of had a weird reaction, and got really ultra-religious and even started preaching for a number of years after this and was kind of ashamed of his participation in it. But later in his biography, or his autobiography, he claims that this is the greatest acting performance that he ever gave. And is is very, very grateful for being a part. Oh, coming up, Borgia's face. Uh, Oh, wait, no, it's after this. It's later on. Um... But this is a beautiful echo of, of Harry Flowers and, of course, probably the most famous sequence in the movie. Um, now, a lot of people have falsely claimed that this sequence is the first music video. But even though some people yeah, still wrong. claim that, this was, this was 1970, and the first music video was Tony Bennett's Strangers in Paradise, from, or Stranger in Paradise from 1953, uh, followed by Elvis's Dale House Rock in 1957. Although, you know, it could be argued that the Silly Symphony shorts from 1929 to 39 and and Fantasia were actually the first music videos because they were centered, they were images centered around music. So, it's this is definitely not the first music video, but God, it's a memorable sequence. Okay. You well, do know I, now, I hate, Tony, that I, someone is waiting for after this movie for when we talk to really get my face going, I told you so. Screw you, Stephen. <laughs> uh, is there going to be a lot of that, Well, Carl? I will say this. I Okay, talking about this, okay, and, 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 and this whole thing about the first music video. Much like I said to Stephen, you know, if you take a look at... Uh, um, George Romero and what he did with the zombie movie and how he really, really codified what what a zombie movie was. I think the person that really codified uh, 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 music videos was the monkeys and Mike Nesmith. Oh, absolutely. And that's my argument. Yeah. You can you can say Tony Bennett the first one. Uh, connotation. You're the man who works behind the man using the soft machine. There's no. Now, here's a little artsy fartsy reference. Uh, now they had a rough time talking these actors into dropping their trousers for this sequence, but because originally the script called for them to be full Monty. Um, but the the inspiration for the imagery uh, came actually from uh, 19... Oh, I can't remember. Uh, a, a 60s painting from... from 
Francis Bacon. You know what? In, that, that features Tony. that features these nude men writhing around, and that's where that yeah. naked imagery was inspired from. That's where Camel. Okay, came earlier Tony talked about missing the dialogue from this movie. If you just notice, Carl, they showed the scene, but the dialogue was cut out. But it's in the subtitles. Yeah, yeah it says he cool. The word "tears to old England." But actually, that 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 audio is missing from the U.S. cut of the film. And that line, "The baby's dead, you gentlemen, while you work for me," goes back to what Flowers said. Yeah, and in the end, at the death, who's left holding the sodding baby? Harry Flowers. Love it. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful sequence. And after all that, Chaz, for the first time, has forgotten to do something important. He's so fastidious, but in this case, he forgot to call Tony. And that leads to his downfall. Well, his downfall comes from him denying that, well, everyone else knows that Chaz is gay, but Chaz, well, he won't admit it. And it's because he was cared about somebody that led for him beating up that guy. Everything that screws Chaz is because of love. Yes. And his desire to become something other than a monster that he was. Uh, which also kind of plays back to the Nabokov novel about how meeting your alter ego can lead to your downfall. Oh, okay, going back to the Francis Bacon painting, I found it. It's a 1967 painting called Three Studies from the Human Body. You should check it out because the... Uh, a lot of the imagery, the central nudity imagery from Memo from Turner was was a direct inspiration from that painting. And that's the thing about Camel is he's so full of influences you can barely keep up with him. He's like he's like Yodorovsky uh, in that way, you know, he just packs his material with so much symbolism and so much reference to uh spirituality, psychedelics, and psychology that, I mean, it's almost an overload of imagery. And here we realize that Tony has been nicked by Chaz's boss. And I love how polite they are. Passing her to tea Mm -hmm. and all that. Proper English gangsters. (laughs) Yeah, and that's, that's totally the image that the craze were trying to project. You know, and this, the whole world that this movie is kind of trying to depict is that these gangsters were moving like gentlemen, even while at night they would put, you know, bare wires to people's feet and make them pay up. And thanking him. Thank yeah. you very much, Tony. So, so I have a, there's something that, that Stephen and I talk about. My favorite film of all time is The Longer Thought. 
And there is a scene in The Long Goodbye where the, the uh, Mark Rydell, who plays the Jewish gangster, has all his cronies uh, uh, undressed down to the skivvies. And now that I see this, I'm wondering if that was some sort of like offhanded idea or homage to this film. It would not surprise me. Wouldn't Boy, surprise me I would either. Say it was. I have no confirmation on that at all. So, you know, don't and, take me And this it may be the most subtle duality in the whole movie, that uh, photo viewer. Yeah. The photo, I've actually, I've actually had one of those in my hand. Very cool. Yeah, they're, they're they're cool. I've got one with a set of cards um, and a lot of black and white images. Those stereoscopic viewers were hugely famous from the 1800s on. Yeah. Isn't it funny? 3D existed it's back so in the day. Sexual. There is no sex almost in the movie. Right. Yeah. There's no actual. Despite all the rumors about the fact that it was full of unsimulated sex. And here's an interesting shot. Turner turns over, and then it's Lucy kissing him. So you never know, you is another... that Turner? Because that... right here, that's uh, Turner. No, that's, that's Lucy right there. You can tell by the freckles on her back. But oh, as yeah. she's that's rolling over... As she was rolling over, it was actually Turner. But then when they go to kiss, it's Lucy. And it just, once again, <laughs> playing with the fluid identity. Yeah. Only in the 70s would telling a girl that she has small titties get you laid. <laughs> I, mean, I love how they're just insulting each other. You got small titties, don't you? Yeah, you look like a little boy, don't you? <laughs> But there's no judgment behind it. He's just, no. you know, kind of like, and that's, to me, that's what's that's kind of beautiful it about it, is they're, they're able to just observe each other for who they are and not reject them for it or judge them for it. He's, he's making these observations that in other scenarios would be insults, like you said, Steve. But here, he's, yeah. he's opened up. He's, he's naked. His soul is open, and he's able to say these things as just person to person. Matter of fact, and for well, and for and the first time, how how he's really able to have sex with her because she does look like a boy. And that yeah, that could definitely be part of it. I mean, the whole the whole trinity of identities here that he's dealing with. He's like, I can pretend to have gay sex. Well, I'm straight because it's really a girl. And there's the plane from the very first of the movie. Yep. Kind of a reminder that despite the fact that Chaz has opened up and is having his soul bared in this little insulated world hiding from reality, outside reality is ticking on. The clock is ticking, reality is going on, and it's going to catch up with him no matter how he hides. Yeah, reality always has a way to come back and bite you in the ass. Right, girl? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, we're I love that poster. End of the movie. 
Yeah. It's like you're in this interesting world that you don't want to leave, and... Yeah. And in the... It's interesting in the original uh, in the original script, uh, Lucy goes to uh, drop off the passport photos to Tony, and uh, Harry's gangsters follow Lucy back to Turner's apartment. She doesn't realize that she wasn't followed, and that's how they do it. Instead of the scene with Tony getting Turner's direct address. Little things like that were different in the end, but I, the ending was was a lot different um, because the ending of of the original script, which it was a little more uh, innocent and idealized, in which this bad person becomes good through the love that is shown him by these three people, and he sacrifices himself at the end to save them. Now, in the original script, there was this huge drug bust that happened where the the cops showed up in a routine inspection of Turner's pad in order to basically shake him down uh, for a drug bust. And Chaz thought that it was the cops coming for him, and he jumps up and grabs his gun, and they try and stop him. He ends up punching Lucy in the face uh, in his panic, and it ends up that Turner gives himself up to the police in order to keep them from finding Chaz. And Chaz pays his bail, he gets out, and Turner is going to have to do six months, but Ferber's going to take care of everything. And then the gangsters show up, and Chaz gives himself up willingly to the gangsters to be executed in order to save the lives of the three people that have shown him love. But you know, it got and, much more metaphysical in the in the end. And that scene right there the is a better showing of the, what uh, Henry Hill talks about in Goodfellas than that scene where he talks about it in Goodfellas. <laughs> you know, they don't come to him as thugs, as people who are going to murder him. Nope, they come to you as friends and people you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, and they're really sorry about it. Sorry, man. You have to do this. Yeah. What was it they say a lot in the long goodbye that most people don't understand? It's business. It's business. Yeah, it's just business. Yeah, and even earlier in the scene in performance where Joey Maddox and Harry Flowers and Chaz are there, you know, Chaz... Harry Flowers is trying to humiliate Chaz for misbehaving and going collecting Joey Maddox despite specifically being ordered not to do that. And Harry Flowers even makes a uh makes an allusion to the fact that no, it's not it's not about Harry Flowers. It's about the business. The business is bigger than all of us. And that's that's kind of the philosophy behind these gentlemen gangsters is sometimes we have to do brutal things but there's no reason to be uncivilized about it. Yeah. And I would say this really does yeah, we talked about the long goodbye but and Gabriel Burns and uh, what's his name's relationship and uh, Albert Cross Albert Finney. Yeah, and Albert, Albert Finney's relationship. 
and here it is. Now there's the picture of Borges right there that shatters as their two identities merge. And you never, you know, you're you're not 100% sure what happens here in the end, but they give you enough to suggest that there is there has been a true mergering of of these two personalities. You see Chaz being walked out to what you think is his death and as the as the uh, Rolls-Royce pulls away, you see that it's Turner in the back seat. Oh, interesting story. Uh, that Rolls-Royce that's parked outside the apartment right now is yeah. uh, actually, actually belonged to John Lennon. Um, they called him up and said they needed a Rolls-Royce for the end of the movie. Can we borrow your Rolls for a couple days? And John Lennon lent it to him for no money. So that's actually John Lennon's car. That, uh, You're forgetting the bigger sto- history about that. Uh, what's that's that? That's the Rolls-Royce that when he went cold turkey and drove around for uh, about four weeks with <laughs> Bob Dylan. Yep, yep, that's the very same. But to me, the <laughs> ending is he becomes Chaz, but Chaz becomes Turner. Because by opening himself up like this, Chaz's demon has left him. Except it's a bad thing when it happens to Turner. But it's a good thing when it happens to Chaz. That's that's definitely one way to interpret it. That's one of the things I love about this film is it doesn't give you a solid answer. It just gives you the pieces. And they fought. And they the fact that the, the opening shot and end shot are the same is showing you that you're going to have to go back and watch this again. Yep. Damn it, that's so true. People should watch this movie at least three times. And at least one of them should be our commentary. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. Since nobody's Carl, ever recorded a commentary like for this seeing movie. It uncut. Well, Sim, pretty much uncut for once, and actually a good print. Okay, so one of the actors, I I like it. I think it's a great print. I think it's a great film. But I I want to point this out. There was an actor in a very small role that I noticed. His name is Ken Colley. Ken Colley was also in another film about rock and roll that was uh, directed by the head of a particular rock group. Would you know what that was? Mm, Not off the top of my head, no. Ken Colley was in a movie called Return from Waterloo that was directed by by Ray Ray Davies. Davies. Yeah, Yeah. Ray Davies film. Oh, okay. I love that movie. Didn't Ray Davies say something that he cast him because he was in performance? Well, yeah. look at the last shot right here, that puzzle box. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that magical symbol. Right. Um, that's yep, there it is. When he puts his pens no on either side. No, there aren't. What a great and film, man. I'm it truly, truly is. It's, it's one of my five favorite movies ever. I never ever get sick of watching this film, and every time I watch it, I get a little bit more out of it. I picked this movie for this weekend. Is last year at this time, but 
I didn't make it. I had a ticket to see this on the big screen at Central. Oh. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah, that this would be you got really sick good that movie. weekend, didn't you, Steve? What? Yeah, I got sick that weekend. Did... That sucks, man. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I've never I gotten to see it on the big guys. screen. Yeah, that's true, and it was a lot of fun. And is there a commentary on performance on the BFI disc? Nope. There has never been a commentary recorded for this film. Now they are. Now they are. Now, now we got one for yeah. the ages, you guys. <laughs> Hopefully, but for the ages. Again, again I, I want to thank each one of you, but but the the thing I love about this film, and the more and more I see it, and you're listening to the soundtrack, system, the music to this. I'm not a huge Stones fan, but the music to this particular film is fucking amazing. Yeah, it Seriously. really is. I, I can't imagine what this film would be like without all that wonderful music in it if it were just a Rolling Stones soundtrack. Because I, I really love the Rolling Stones, but this movie, it was so serendipitous that, that them doing the soundtrack ended up falling through because what we got was a beautiful soundscape of talent. From uh, four alpha male composers, right, Carl? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly call call uh, uh, Cooter an alpha male in terms that he always loved to, to, you know, even when he was doing live stuff with all his musicians, it was all about the musicians around him. So I don't call yeah. him an alpha. But what Cooter's I mean by alpha male is. You listen to a Mick Jagger song, you know it's a Mick Jagger song. You listen to right. a Randy Newman song, you know it's a you Randy know it's Newman. It. And same with, well, definitely with Ry Cooter. I mean, you could just tell him by three notes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, he's got You know, and I'll, I'll tell you style. what, I have a lot of people come to me and like, what's, what's the, the best Ry Cooter soundtrack? Of course, ninety-nine out of are going to see Paris, Texas, as well they should. I said, if you know Paris, Texas, listen to this. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it isn't Paris, Texas. It's Southern Comfort. That's the first time I really ran into Ry Cooter and just (laughs) holy fuck! (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that's another great that beautiful credit song. Mm-hmm. Oh well, yeah. looks like we're about out of time, gentlemen. Yeah, no, yeah, we like, want to do more of this. Let's watch it again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's the way we want it again. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on, you guys. I really had a blast. This is, like I said, it's one of my very favorite movies. It was a pleasure watching it with you. Yeah, and thank you to Criterion Channel for actually putting this up as part of their 70s style collection. As well yeah. as should be. Now, now everybody uh, has a chance to watch it. Yeah. yeah. And, and Tony, Tony, I just want to say thank you particularly. We've done a couple of commentaries together, and it's always a pleasure to do one with you, man. It's always a pleasure. Feeling is mutual, my friend. I had a blast every time. And this, you know, this is this is 
probably my favorite well, so we've far. Well, we've done El Topo. We've, we've done uh, uh, this one. Uh, what's the next one we should do? Uh, we'll, we'll see whenever we'll have it to comes sort up. That out. Because every time we plan something, it never works out. <laughs> I think the, All right, gentlemen. Well, maybe now Tony will have more time now that Wings Shop is becoming a new simmer streamline edition. We can only hope. We can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, as much as. Uh, in other words, Tony is saying, please, God, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. I won't. How many times since I started have I I've been one of those that was like. Man, with all the stuff busted up into two issues, you could do it easily without even blinking. Oh, that's so much easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? It's always easier to take a 200-page book and separate it into two 100 pages. Oh, is it now, Professor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could schedule where you actually give yourself breathing room. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. Well, I need to sign off. So thank you again for having me on. I really appreciate it. And everybody stay hunkered uh, down, stay safe, and watch. I to uh, take you home, and they said they got your passport. Yep, right out in the car. (laughs) All right, gentlemen. You guys have a good night. Wash your hands. Uh, yeah, my hands have never been so clean in my life. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. Take care, Steve. Take care, Carl. Good night, right. America. Good having you, Tony. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. And it's time for the spiel. Tomorrow night, Carl picked out the Easter move. And this one shocked me because usually I'm like, Carl, pick a religious movie. God, no. He's not a... <laughs> And then Carl well, this not a religious told movie. me curveball. He threw me a brick in the face. <laughs> it is a religion. It's a Jesus allegory. It is. It's a I Jesus allegory. But with midgets and, and, and her fellowships and masturbation. Yeah, what could be wrong with that? <laughs> it's, yes, it's the one and only Greece Palace. palace. How is this I become, love you can answer this tomorrow night, but how in the hell has this one become Robert Downey Sr.'s most well-known film? It's a good question. It's yeah. a good question. You'll probably have a great answer tomorrow night. but Yeah, and I have a couple answers. Monday, Monday's going to be long. Monday. Usually, yes, it is. This is. It's going to be an R.I.P. episode. But for the first part of it, we did repost up there on my wall, and it's in the archives on wherever you get this. Listen to the commentary for House House with Mike House. Uh, let's see. No, it was it was the four musketeers as we called ourselves back then. Me, yeah. Mike, you and Doc. Right. And we did the and house. And to make tour. it easier on a Sunday, that is a perfect 
our perfect RIP to him. Mhm. Agreed. Agreed. That means Monday we're going to be there and talk about pretty much most of the show is going to be Alan Garfield and the great John Prime. But there's going there's so much more. You know, let, let's not forget Pussy Galore either. Oh yeah, you know what Mike said today, and it's sadly true. What? At least Nobu died of lung cancer and not the coronavirus. <laughs> Jesus God, yes. Yeah, what? that's so kind of what we're living in. We're like, he died of getting hit by a car. Thank God. <laughs> Seriously. Absolutely. uh, It's going to be a week late, but next week, uh, over at the Cafe de Ray Mission, they're going to talk about the biggest, well, the second biggest cult TV series of all time. Don't tell him, but the prisoner's still number one. I'm off guard. I have to agree with you. The same fan base for this bad boy. And that is Twin mm-hmm. Peaks. Yep. Agreed. And what do you have Agreed. going on Thursday? Well, uh, it's a good question. What are we doing? Uh, uh, we're doing uh, um, shampoo. And is that going to yeah. be recorded oh, I Thursday? I thought you going to do a Carl's Cavern on Thursday, too. Uh, I'm not sure yet about Carl's Cavern. i got to work on that. But are but we are gonna this your, week we're uh, gonna do shampoo. Are you still working on getting your deputy for shampoo? I'm trying. I'm trying. I haven't found anyone yet. But Adam said he'd probably come in if if need be. So at least we'll have yeah, a third. He's, he's an Ashby fanatic, isn't he? Uh, he likes Ashby. But he, of course, Adam is more attuned to TV than. In film, but but he loves film find too. Find someone better. Um, Come on. <laughs> I'm trying. Okay. I know. I do that, have a third person. If not, it'll just be me and you, and we'll rip on it. Absolutely. Remember, we are a two-man band. That, that's true. I'm we are. The drummer, and you're the lead guitarist, bassist, and the lead singer. Mm-hmm. Not only has Carl got the ego to do it, but he's got the arms too. Yeah, we don't show it on the Don't forget, I dance. I dance, too. Yeah. But still, six <laughs> arms play the bass and guitar and hold the microphone <laughs> at the same time. Well, this mother. is why I, I, you know, I had trouble getting my birth certificate because I was actually hatched. But that, that's something <laughs> else. And next Thursday, we are doing shampoo, which. It really fits in with the performance because, well, the four movies that we, the the three movies that we picked out of the seventy style collection because the man who fell to earth is Nicholas Rowe and it's really one of the most stylish sci-fi films of the seventies. Right, it's very true. And Shampoo is the perfect picture of it moment. Absolutely. Except that it's not stuck in its moment. No. We'll get into that one. No, and, 
and it's Hal Ashby too, which which I love Hal Ashby's work during the seventies. Uh, just a tremendous uh, uh, director. Uh, and and um, you know, don't forget, we already have done one uh, with Miss Vicky, and that's in the archives. And so, you know, if you want to go to the Criterion Channel, check out uh, the Toshiro Mifune collection and check out Red Sun, and we did a commentary of that last week, uh, uh, which was really check good, too. Check out Red Sun, Stray Dog, uh, Rashomon, Red Beard. There's a reason why there's a Toshiro Mifune collection. Yeah, and that reason is Toshiro Mifune. You can just your finger up, up and down, and wherever your film la- finger lands, you're done good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Agreed. The 70s style collection is great, but any hall is perfect for the 70s, but I would have picked a different Woody Allen. Which one would you have picked? Probably Sleeper. I could see that. I would have picked a different one, too. Which one would I pick? Oh, wow. Love and Death. Yeah, but that was the film that broke him. Sleeper was, like, I think his biggest mainstream hit of the 70s besides... That and Bananas, too. Yeah. Bananas oh, no, too. I wouldn't put Sleeper. I would put just because of how big it was in the 70s and 70s style. And that's everything you wanted to ask about sex but didn't ask. You know, wanted uh, to know about sex Everything but didn't you wanted ask. to know about sex but didn't ask. Now, I, I would do Love and Death. I think Love and Death yeah. is his best comedy. Seriously, I do. I think it's his best comedy. But again, thank you all for listening. God Darn, did this turn out good. And not only that, it went so quick. Oh, yeah. Well, this is probably the first time you've really seen it. Well, you know, the other thing, too, is is Tony just was incredibly good with his information. Tony, brought like a, Tony told me earlier that he had a stack full of notes and everything. He was, like, ready for this. Yeah, yeah, as you can tell, it was wonderful. Uh, it's always good to have him. Always do a damn commentary. Jesus, you'll get good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hire him. Trust me. All right. So listen and good again. Night, Thank you. We'll see season. you tomorrow night for Greaser's Palace. Greaser's Palace it is. Yay! Good night, everyone. Good night.